Okay, well, everybody okay? Doing good? Ready to roll? Awake? A little bit? Okay, well, hey, uh, grab a Bible, and uh, we're going to go through 2 Corinthians chapter 7 today. So, uh, make sure the guys in the back row back there have Bibles. So, okay, they're my buddies, so they're, I'm pick on them. Uh, so, here's what we're going to do today. We'll just let the cat out of the bag right, to the, right at the beginning. Well, we're going to talk about repentance. Repentance. And uh, we're going to show you uh, repentance at the beginning of the journey with the Lord and repentance that takes place all throughout your journey with the Lord. It's such a serious matter, I want to direct you to Acts chapter 20. Paul, who is writing 2 Corinthians, is also writing, or excuse me, also being discussed about and talked about in Acts chapter 20. And he's sort of uh, giving an overview of to folks in Turkey or Ephesian or Ephesus, sorry, uh, giving an overview to the folks in Ephesus about his ministry. And as you know, Paul was a killer of the Christians and in the Jewish religion, and he was a very highly educated, or he was a highly educated, high image, high profile, high access, high and powerful guy who had an encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus in Syria, and that encounter with the Lord changed his life radically. He said, I no longer count any of those things I formerly counted important, nothing, power, prestige, money, none of that's important to me. There's, there's just one thing that's important to me, Paul said, and that's knowing the Lord, just that personal interaction, relationship between he and the Lord, showing up as a surrendered, spirit-filled Christian, saying, Lord, what do you have for me? And the Lord called him all around the ancient world, the Mediterranean Sea, to establish churches. And he gets to Ephesian, or why do I keep saying that? Ephesus, to the Ephesian elders, and he sort of is giving an overview of what he's been doing. And I want to take you through it for a second. It starts in verse 17, chapter 20, as he is now exhorting, encouraging, building up the Ephesian elders. He tells them what he's been doing. Here it is. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, see, I can't even do it when it's right in front of me, and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia... In what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. And here he is going to say what he taught. And he tells us right here what his central message is that the he was asked to deliver by the Holy Spirit to the people of the ancient world that 
still applies today. Here's his central message that the Lord used by the power of the Holy Spirit to start a revolution in people's hearts. And here it is. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. He summarizes it right there. Uh, He was willing to give up his entire life as he knew it for this message. And it starts and ends, well, not ends, but it starts with repentance, repentance towards God. So we have to figure out what repentance is, don't we? And we're going to do that today through a story that's found in 2 Corinthians. By the way, there's repentance that is for your justification. That's, in other words, it's how you get saved. Repentance and justification go hand in glove. It's not so much something that you do. You can check me on this. You can debate me on this. I'm happy to do it. It's something that happens. It's not something you do so much. It's something that happens in your salvation experience, your justification experience. But when we talk about 2 Corinthians chapter 7, or we discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 7 here today, Paul has taken a detour from the middle of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians all the way to the middle of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians to discuss what his life was like in the ministry and he discusses the glory of the new covenant of grace. But in the middle of chapter 7, and I'll point it out to you, he gets back to the fact that he and the Corinthian church that he established for 18 months have sort of been at odds. Now that never happens in the Christian church. People don't get angry with one another. People don't slight one another and all that sort of thing and talk about one another. No, that never happens. And today, Paul tells us how refreshing it is when people who are Christians repent. And he gives us the definition of what repentance is. So there's repentance that I'm trying to tell you or explain to you, not very artfully or articulate, that is for your entry into the Christian life. That's justification. But there's also repentance that's for our life as we grow in Christ and interact with others in the body or others outside of the body. There's repentance for that, and that's our journey of sanctification, becoming more Christ-like. Everybody following? Great. So now, after having seen what Paul's central message was as he traveled the ancient world and established all these churches, repentance towards God. That's what it was, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. We turn now back to 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, we turn ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You don't know this, or maybe you do, but we're here to tell you. The chapter designations, like 7, 8, 9, 
And then the verse designations, like chapter 7, verse 1, aren't inspired. You get that, right? And I'm thinking there's no other better place in the Bible to show you that they aren't inspired than chapter 7, verse 1, and here's why. Chapter 7, verse 1 clearly goes with the end of chapter 6. What was Paul talking about and the end of chapter 6? It's that we are to pursue holiness, okay? We are to pursue holiness. On one hand, you have now, by a judicial act, a spiritually judicial act, you didn't do anything. When you surrendered your life to Christ, counted on his finished work at the cross and resurrection, the Holy Spirit of God came to live in your life. You were forgiven, justified, and declared not guilty, and you did nothing. You just received that gift. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that you now receive the righteousness that he possesses has been placed into your spiritual bank account so that he not only doesn't count your sin against you, but positively you have the righteousness of God in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? But at the same time, you still live in these bodies with this nature that sort of wars against the spiritual, the fleshly nature. And the book of Hebrews tells us that we are to pursue peace. We are to pursue peace and holiness. Time out. Wait a minute. Aren't I holy? Yeah. Positionally, you have the righteousness of God. It's in your spiritual bank account. But practically, you still live in this mortal body. And I got news for you. You and I, we still sin. And the Bible says that we're to pursue holiness. And there's a number of reasons why we are to pursue holiness. One, God, uh, for his remnant, says, I want you to be like me, not that you'll ever be a God, but he wants you to have the nature and characteristics of the Lord, right? And you're to pursue it. You're to cooperate with God as he makes you more Christ-like. Is everybody following? You can't just sit on the couch and eat bonbons or watch, you know, the, the, whatever you watch and say, Lord, just make me holy and I'll watch this all day long. That's not what it is. The Bible says that you're to pursue holiness. Everybody still with me? And here, Paul says to the Corinthians, as they've been in an argument, the argument is this, a lot of different things, but one great thing is that Paul had to rebuke them severely. He sent them 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is a rebuking letter. But there's also references to a letter that we don't have that was even more of a rebuking letter because there was terrible sin in the camp in Corinth. So Paul, who loved them, would cry over them, sweat and tears and pour out his blood for them. He loved them, had to send this rebuking letter, and actually, we think, visited and rebuked them and then went away. And he's getting ready to go back and visit the Corinthians, so he tells them, I'll be there. And guess what? He couldn't be there. The Lord switched his plans. And so now the Corinthians, oh my, all you want to do is just rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. What kind of Christian are you? And in fact, you told us you would come. You didn't, man. 
What a, are you even a Christian? Are you a man of your word? You don't keep your word. Are you even interested in us? Do you even care about us? And throughout this, it seems as if they called into, his, uh, into question his credentials and his apostolic ministry and a lot of other things, and maybe even that he was a person who preyed on the people for monetary gain as he gave them the gospel. But all of this was untrue, and there was some this going on between the church that Paul established and loved and the people fighting back. You guys get it? And so Paul, chapter 1, chapter 2, sort of sets forth his credentials. In the middle of chapter 2, as he's talking about Titus, his, his understudy, and uh, a place called Troas, bursts into this prelude of praise. And it goes all the way through chapter 7, around verse 4 or so. And then he gets back to talking to the Corinthians. But in this burst of praise... He says this in chapter 6, verse 11. We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You know, it's never really love unless you're vulnerable. (laughs) You know who needs to hear this just on a practical and personal level? Our husbands. We're so closed off. We want to be independent, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, not show our emotions. Well, if there's really love, then we will be vulnerable because love is real love when it's responded to. Like, for instance, if I asked Jan out for a date and she never said yes, well, there would have been no love back. Love always asks for a response. You can even see it in the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, but that's for another day. Love requires us to open our hearts, and love also requires a response. The beauty happens not when we just open our hearts, but when we open our hearts, men, and then the ladies respond, or ladies, you open your hearts, and the men respond. That's love. And between Paul and a church, he says, listen, we were vulnerable with you. We opened up our hearts to you. you and you uh, are not restricted by us, in verse 12, but, but you're restricted by your own affections. You thought things were more important than taking care of of this issue that we have, and you wouldn't open your hearts back up to me and my ministry team, Paul's saying, and so the beauty of love could never happen through reconciliation. Is everybody still with me? So he says, now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. If we want to resolve this, we have to be vulnerable with each other and be transparent with each other and open up to one another. Don't, he says, be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He sort of shifts gears here now as he's talking to the Corinthian church. Don't partner up permanently with unbelievers because there's no fellowship between righteousness and lawlessness. And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, a word for the enemy of our souls, Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? So here it comes. Now, I want you to see this. Here comes a ton of promises of God. And oh, by the way, rabbit trail, you and I and we are to stand on the promises of God. Here they come, rapid fire, right at you. For 
or excuse me, for you are the temple of the living God. See, we, we blow by that because we're doing our two-year study and, uh, you know, we just read it. And You are the temple of God, the weightiness of God, the kabod of the, the glory of the Lord resides in his people. No longer in a tent or a tabernacle. He resides in his people. What a privilege. What an honor. How humble and humbling that is, that the Lord comes to live inside of us. Paul tells the Corinthians and us that we're the temple of God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here comes a whole bunch of promises. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Just promise after promise after promise. By the way, time out. Uh, anyway, but here's a timeout. I won't be funny about the two-year Bible plan. I get people mad at me. But anyway, do you know that Paul is quoting Scripture from the Old Testament there, and it's not perfectly quoted? But he's got the ideas right. You can go back and check it. That argues for... Uh, jumping around in the two-year Bible, but that's for another day. No, I'm kidding. But it's interesting that Paul gets it right. He doesn't quote it exactly. He, he quotes these Old Testament scriptures, and they are true, and they are right. The principles are right, but it's, they're not exact. And this is Paul, by the way, folks. And I'll dwell in them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Very interesting to me. I'll just let you sort of think about that. Therefore, come out from among them. He says, if you're called as a person of God, as if you're called to Christ, and you come to Christ, and you surrender your life to Christ, then you're going to have a relationship with God. It's going to be an intimate relationship because the Spirit of the living God is going to actually live in you. Not only that, but he'll walk with you and he'll talk with you. We should write a hymn about that. But, and he'll be their God and they shall be my people. It's very intimate. Are you seeing this? And therefore, he says, in light of that fact, you're to do something. You're to come out from among the people. You're to look different than the world. You're not to love the world or anything in it. You're not to be a person who mingles with the word, not world. Now, that's a weird thing because, not a weird thing, but it's a weird way in which we translate this. We think, oh, shoot, okay, I'm reading this, so here's what I'll do. I'll go home. I'll never talk to a non-Christian. I'll only talk to them. I'll only come to church. I'll never go deviate. I won't even go shopping. I'll just do Walmart delivery or whatever it is. And I won't just blah, 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 blah. And I'll, nobody will ever see me. And we'll just get together and we'll always fellowship and we'll never go out. Well, that's not accurate. That, that's improper. Because the Lord was so perfect. He sat with the sinners. But never was his witness ever diminished in any way. Because he was called out. He was separate from them, yet with them. And that's what you're called for. But we are not to live like a non-Christian. We're not to think on things that a non-Christian would think on. The fleshly thing, the sensual things, the evil things, the improper things. And so you think on that, and you, uh, you say, well, what... 
Things am I consuming and listening to and watching come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't even touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. You see, if you want to be close to the heart of the Lord, do you? I mean, do you really? Do I really want to be close to the heart of the Lord? Do I? Because he says, if you'll draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. What a perfect gentleman. I won't force you, but if you'll draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. And here he says, I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. He says, listen, this isn't something that you're going to decide. As you have been called out and uh, are now a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, you're going to come out from the world, and the more you put away those things in the negative, the closer you're going to be to my heart. The closer you'll be to my heart, I'll be a father. And in fact, I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And I did all that to tell you that chapter 7, verse 1 goes with all of that. It shouldn't be a chapter break. Therefore, having these promises, what promises? All those that he just rattled off. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, that verse is pregnant with meaning. We could spend a month of Sundays or more just breaking down that, but having these promises, the promises above and others, all the promises of God, beloved, that word in the Greek is a... You remember when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? It's the same word. God's saying, oh, because I find you in Christ, you're my beloved. And because we're in a family, our family cares, God says, about the things that I care about because they're healthy and safe and will make you whole. You're going to want to wander. You're prone to wander. Don't you feel it? You're prone to wander. We're prone to wander. And when you wander, there's going to be things that are going to come into your life, and they're going to be hurtful and devastating, and it's going to take a while to recover from it. So, so here's what I want you to do, the Lord says. I want you to come out from those things and don't participate. In fact, they can be things or sins of the spirit or of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, come on. That's easy. The things that you do in the body. You commit adultery. Uh, sins of the flesh. That's one. You look at pornography. Sins of the spirit because you're lusting after something. You get it? You're a gossiper. Sins of the spirit. You go down to the store and steal something or steal something from taxes. Sins of the flesh. You get it? And what's interesting here is Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I don't think America Church talks about this enough, says you are to cleanse yourself from this filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Here's what we do. I'm a Christian. I'm going to go sit on my couch, and I'll look at anything, say anything I want to, do anything I want, and I'll ask for forgiveness later. Hey, by the way, there's grace, man. There's grace. Even here people say, why aren't you giving me grace? Oh, you mean give you an excuse to sin. Is that what you're saying? 
And there is grace and there is mercy, of course. But what Paul is saying here is, you must participate with God. You can't just go sit on the couch and pray and not participate. There has to be a putting away of things that are improper or wrong and a focusing on or taking in things that are positive and great, like taking away. If your phone is causing you to look at pornography, come on, folks, just get rid of the phone. You're not that important to have the phone. Don't lie and say, well, my boss. Well, have your boss call you some other way. But at the same time, as you're doing stuff like that, how about filling yourself up with the light and life of Jesus? We studied Ezekiel this morning in the Bible college. What a fantastic first day. It was such a blessing. I hope it was for them. It was for me. And as Ezekiel is called to minister to the people in Babylon, his people, God gives him a vision of himself. You know the vision, wheel and the wheel and all that sort of thing. Didn't you sing that in elementary school? Okay, I did. Anyway, uh, gives him a vision, and then he does something really interesting. He says, I want you to tell everybody only what I tell you. And I got a news for you. They're really rebellious, and they probably won't listen. And here's how we're going to prepare you for it. You like to eat? Okay, you're going to eat the scroll of all my words, and it's going to taste like honey. In other words, the Lord was saying, fill yourself up with the word of God so that you'll be equipped for your ministry that's going to be hard and difficult. Why not fill yourself up with the word of God instead of looking at pornography all the time? Or whatever. How about filling yourself up with the joy of the Lord through his word instead of sitting on the back bench and talking about everybody. So there's a negative thing of taking away, but there's also a positive of filling up and focusing. And the Lord says here to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You realize now that you and I and we have to participate in pursuing holiness. Do you get that? I mean, it's, I mean, just read. He makes us righteous, judicial decree, but now that we're becoming more and more like Christ, Romans 8, 28, the Lord asks us to participate. You know, there's some people in this fellowship that are amazing piano players. Who here is an amazing piano player? I'm laughing because I was going to say you're humble too. But anyway, <laughs> we do. We have some amazing piano players. And I was talking to one of them this week, and I was asking them, at the beginning when you played piano, what did you do? And he, he said, I really concentrated. And I'd look at the music, and I'm back, and blah, blah, blah. And it was hard and difficult, and I couldn't get my fingers. And I say, what do you do now? He says, man, I play and I talk to people. I don't even think about it. He's He's, he's free in his piano playing. You getting that? How did he become such a great piano player? He practiced. He did it. He kept going. He got up when his left pinky wouldn't hit there or whatever, and then did it again. And he, listen, how do you pursue holiness? It's through this Christian disciplines, folks. You say, discipline? I thought this was a church of grace. It is. You want to be more free in your life Practice the Christian disciplines. What's that? 
Well, study the word. Pray. Be a person of praise and service and love and forgiveness. And when it's, you don't do it, you pick yourself up and you ask the Lord to help you and you move on. And someday, whatever it is that you're stumbling on, you'll just be able to play. That's freedom. Here he says, perfecting holiness. By the way, that doesn't mean you can come to a perfect state of holiness in this life. This just means uh, uh, you, you know, you're complete and you're mature in holiness, but it's all because you love and fear the Lord in the best possible way, like a great dad. You just want to please him. That's what this is. So then he goes on and he says, listen, he gets back to this theme because they must not have been doing it so well. Open your hearts to us. If we're ever going to solve a problem between us, Paul says, there must be a softening and an opening by both parties. Do you see that? You think I've been doing this and I've done that and I haven't done this and I've taught something weird. or done, and you, But you, you've closed your heart off to us. He says, well, why don't you open your heart to us? We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Paul is saying and sticking up for his ministry, he's saying, you might not know the motives behind what we've done here. And it might seem, even in some of those letters, harsh, because I had to rebuke you, Paul said, but you have to realize there was sin in the camp. I mean, you could go down them. Uh, they were suing each other in the courts and taking their problems right into the public square and making Christ's name or taking Christ's name through the mud in the public square. Remember that? They were suing each other. Oh, oh, by the way, uh, one uh, stepson was having sexual relations with his stepmom, and that was bad, but the worst part about it is the church never said anything, and Paul was appalled by that. And that's right there in 1 Corinthians, folks, and many other things. There was lots of things, and he's saying, I know it seems to you like we've done something harsh, but we've corrupted no one. We, we have cheated no one. We've wronged no one. We were doing what the Lord asked us to do. And sometimes, as we live this life together, Paul says, there's some tough things that have to happen. So I've said before that you are in our hearts. Here's what he's saying. You don't get it, he's saying to the Corinthian church. We love you. Now, what the world's sort of love is, is, oh, the world's sort of love is, hey, let's just be nice to one another, and if I do anything wrong, don't tell me about it, because really it's none of your business, and, uh, you know, I'm doing my thing, and you're doing your thing, and as long as we don't hurt each other, then let's just leave that alone, and let's just sort of play that shallow game and not really uh, dig deep with people. That's what the Corinthians were saying, similar to many Christian churches, let's just not dig deep with any, and let's not even talk about the things that are going on, because who, who wants to, you know, invade somebody's space? That's sort of what they're saying. Yet, the Bible doesn't call us to that here at the Christian church. It calls us to be involved with one another's life, not in a condemning way or any way, but we might say to somebody, you know, that might not be proper. 
You might want to think, rethink about that, but I want you to know as I'm telling you this, as we say to our friends, I love you. We love you. We're thinking about you. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts. We love you to die together and to live together. In fact, do you catch what he's saying here? We'll love you till we die, no matter what. No matter what, we'll love you till we die. Great is my boldness of speech, verse 4, toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. See, here's why. You're going to find out in a minute. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly sorrowful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. That should be the theme of ministry. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So see, there's this whole story. There's this guy named Titus. You know his book later on. He talks about the training grace of God. But Titus was an understudy of Paul. And Paul was looking for help, basically, with the Corinthian church. And he used a younger guy named Titus to help him because, remember, he couldn't get there when he wanted to go there, and he had to deliver letters and all that sort of thing. And so Titus was in on this. He knew that the Corinthian church had some things against Paul. Paul, There was this conflict between the two. And to make a long story longer, Paul asked Titus to go check on them and see if the rebuking letters and visit had had any effect. And good news, apparently the Lord used it in repentance by, on behalf of the Corinthians towards the Lord and towards Paul because here now he said, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all my tribulations because, listen, I got to tell you, Paul says, isn't it great that Paul is raw and real? Anybody else like this? Sometimes, you know, I know, I know, you're going to laugh when I say it, or maybe you won't. Maybe you're just thinking it. Maybe you're saying, he said it to me before. Sometimes I just say things that I feel. I'm too blunt. <laughs> Ask the basketball kids back there. Yeah, it's not good for chant. <laughs> and... You know, your heart as a Christian person in ministry, and you, you all have felt this, is you want to help people. And just being frank with you, I mean, we walk around a lot of times, pastors included, with this, you know, what's that, what's that movie that's fake and Jim Carrey's in it? And it's, anyway, what is it? Nah, not that one. It's one about that city. It's like plastic and black and white. What is it? I, I can't hear. Truman Show. There we go. And we walk around like that, and we're fake and phony, and people say, well, how are you doing? And you know, we're just, we're just dying inside. And we just say, oh, we're just great. How are you, brother or sister? And now how can I pray for you? And, you? and inside, you're just hurting, right? Well, Paul here comes to a place where he says, man, we're doing all this ministries, and we were tired. Our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. There were conflicts among people. Are you reading this? 
Inside, we were hurting. We were sick about these things. We knew people were going down the wrong path. And we would go to them and we would say things to them like, man, you're going down the wrong path. And they'd say stuff like, oh, who are you to tell me what to do? Some kind of Christian you are. Why don't you just check your own life? We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. I got news. Paul was raw with people, man. He didn't just say, yeah, everything's great. He told it like it is. I was scared. I was hurting. I had phobias. Nevertheless, that's the good pivot, as we learn to lament here, God who comforts the downcast. He's saying, I can come to you and deliver a sermon, Paul says, because I've been where you've been. I know you are hurting. I had to deliver this message to you, and you didn't like it. I understand. I've been there. People have said things to me. Can you see it from my side? And they might have said, yeah, we can see it from your side. And God came to me and comforted me because I was cast down. This is Paul speaking, folks. This isn't fake language. This is real. Any people here ever been downcast? Oh, we're going to Jerusalem, so that's more money in the fund. (laughs) He's comforted us, and I want you to see something. Here it comes. I did all of this. If you've been, you're sleeping now, don't sleep. How does God comfort us? Well, he does it a number of different ways, but one really important way, one really important way, (laughs) he does it through his people. Here Paul says, God comforted me by my understudy. (laughs) You getting it? Paul wasn't too proud or haughty or whatever you want to say to say, hey, I'm the teacher, he's the pupil. What could he ever possibly teach me? He said, no, God really comforted me. He sent me Titus, somebody who's been through it with me. I needed him at the time. And when he came, it was so refreshing, just sort of what like Andy was saying at the announcements. Am I a stealer of joy or am I a person who likes to encourage, give courage to people? And when Paul walked away from Titus, you see, he had the courage. He had the courage. In fact, I want to read to you some notes I have, but I'll have to go on my phone because I couldn't get my phone to connect to the printers today. So I'm going to read to you another verse that talks about this. Look, look in, uh, you don't have to, I'll read it. In Acts 28, verse 15, Acts 28, verse 15, perk up here if you're a lady because you're going through a study called Take Courage. How about this? And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as uh, Appi Forum and three inns. And when Paul saw them, same guy, watch, in book of Acts, he thanked God and took courage. His friends Gave him courage. What is one great way that the Lord comforts us? Through his people. If the Lord is saying to you, send a note to that person, call that person, go see that person, just do it. 
It's the way he comforts people or one of the ways that he comforts. And Paul here was really comforted by Titus, but it wasn't just Titus himself. It was what the Lord was doing through the message that Titus gave, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of our earnest desire, uh, or excuse me, of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Here's reconciliation at its best. You see it here with the Corinthian church. They've had something against each other, and now you see the beauty and the refreshing and the uh, uh, amazing uh, thing that God can do through reconciliation. When two parties come together in the Lord with their differences and let the Lord work it out and forgive one another and ask for forgiveness and they come back and you just see the beauty. Paul says, man, I was so refreshed when Titus was there. And then what Titus told me, oh, it sent me through the roof. I was so refreshed and excited. And he told us how everything or had turned around and you had a desire and a mourning and a zeal for me. You love me still, you see. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, there's the reference to the letter that most people believe is an extra letter that we don't have that's called the sorrowful letter for obvious reasons. He said, I want you to see this. I do not regret it, Paul writes, though I did regret it. You understand, right? The Bible calls us to speak truth and love. And sometimes, you know, when especially, oh boy, me, where the Lord's placed me, I have people come to me and they say things and they tell me things and I know things that they've shared with me. And uh, sometimes it's not for their benefit or their good in the Lord. And I have to be the one. Or not have to be, but God's called me to be the one sometimes because I'm the one that knows these things. To go and to not only love the person and tell them how much I love them, but also to rebuke them. (laughs) And Paul sums it up so perfectly. I had to go and write the letter, and I didn't regret it, but I regretted it. (laughs) I don't want to do this stuff, Paul says. It's hard, it's difficult, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you very sorry. That letter I wrote to you really hurt, though only for a while. Now, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, watch this, but that your sorrow led you to repentance. You know why mostly... We don't like to correct people in the Lord because we love ourselves too much. We're our own idols. We don't want anybody to dislike us a lot of the times. And Paul here is saying there's something greater and higher at stake, and what it is is that person's repentance. It's not me winning an argument over you or you winning an argument over me. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says, if you got to go do it, you make sure you do it gently. Jesus says before you do it, make sure you wipe the big log out of your own eye to take sawdust out of somebody else's. Be really circumspect before you go. But if you must go, note that it's important that you do go and tell the truth so that people will repent 
And these are Christian people. Now, see, I've gone full circle. I started you with repentance that begins the Christian relationship. Here he's talking to people who are Christians. They must live in a state of repentance. So you and I and we need to know what repentance is because there's not much repenting going on in American church. There's a lot of what Paul says is saying we're sorry, and that ain't repentance. Read it with me. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, which tells us that there's an ungodly manner to be sorry. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation, not to be regretted. Watch this. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Wow. This is a matter of great importance in the church, and nobody wants to talk about it. And yet Paul just lays it out so perfectly here. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you. Here's the definition of repentance. <laughs> you ever <laughs> argued with somebody you love? No, I never have. But And you just, you, you know you're right. I mean, you're right, right? And... You know, you just sort of want to get the argument over or whatever, and you say, okay, well, I'm sorry, and then comes the killer. But. Because really what you're saying is, I'm not really sorry because you're still the jerk. You, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's sort of godly sorrow, but, or excuse me, ungodly sorrow, or worldly sorrow. But listen, it can be more than that. That's the extreme case. Ungodly sorrow is anything that, um, uh, even if you feel bad, you cry about something, can still be ungodly sorrow if it never leads you to God and repentance, or repentance and God. Are you catching it? We got presidents that do this sort of thing. They say stuff in depositions, and then they get caught, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I've done that, so I'm not picking on the president. I've done that. We get caught, and we say, oh, shoot, I'm more concerned about what people are going to now think about me and the consequences that are coming. Maybe I'll just say our sorry, and I'll stop it in my, their tracks. And then maybe we can all just sort of forget about what I did, and that'll be, and that's not repentance. When you want to cover things up and get them over with, it's not repentance. Here he says, what diligence it produced in you. A repentant person is diligent. We'll talk about that in a minute. What clearing of yourselves. A repentant person is interested in this appropriate clearing of themselves. They're indignant, but not indignant to the person who called them out. They're indignant to their own sin in their life, and they see it, and they recognize it, and they just hate it in themselves. What fear, that's the 
good fear, what vehement desire to do what is right, what zeal to follow the Lord, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In other words, remember uh, Jesus said you're going to know all these things by their fruits or know people by their fruits. Here's whether you can tell somebody's repentant or not. More importantly, here's whether you can tell you're repentant or I'm repentant or not as we move and grow in the Lord. This is so important, folks, not to just band-aid over our disagreements. No, there's a call to repentance. Therefore, verse 12, although I wrote to you, I didn't do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So here's what I want you to see. When people come to you, or maybe some, you have to go to somebody, we, we've talked about this over and over if your brother has sinned or your sister sinned against you and you need to talk to them, before you go, be very circumspect. you got to recognize there may be something in you that the Lord's doing, not just the other person. Take the log out of your eye before you go take the speck out of theirs. Your goal in going to the person is not to win the argument. It's to gently restore brothers and sisters in repentance. You get it? And maybe the Lord has a little bit of that for you, too. And when you go, it's going to be hard because a lot of people don't want to hear. You know, I, I don't know anybody here that likes a scalpel. You ever, you ever see in the movie or something, the guy pulls or a gal pulls out, the, the surgeon pulls out the scalpel? Man, I just turn my head. I, I don't want to see that. More importantly, I don't want it to be put like here. Or, you know, who wants the scalpel? And yet, if you find out you have certain things wrong with you, you're signing on the dotted line like today, right? Okay, that's this. Here Paul's saying, I don't want to do it, but we got to do it. And he comes to them and he tells them the hard thing, but he wants you to know he's not rejoicing that he made you sorry, but he had to do it because sorrow leads to repentance, godly sorrow. What is godly sorrow? Let's just talk about it. David said, it's against you, Lord, that I have sinned. When we commit sin, it's not just that I committed against the person, maybe. I committed sin. I fell below the standard of my Father in heaven. It's you, Lord, who I've sinned against, and that causes me great pain and sorrow. I'm not just sorry because I got caught. I'm not just sorry because it hurt. I'm not just sorry because people found out. I'm sorry because I sinned against you, Lord. And now what must I do? Repentance, the word is, I must change my mind about what I've been doing. <laughs> I must change my mind. You know, when you got married, if you're married, it was all just wonderful and great. Honeymoon, man, you know, you thought you looked good. I probably didn't, but you thought you did, and you know your wife looked good. It was just so great. And then, you know, you move to Hawaii, and you work out, and everything's going great. And then you have four kids, and you don't work out as much, and your hair is grayer, and you can't run like you used to, and you just... And not everything is in the right place anymore. And, you know, everything's just different. But 
beyond the looks and the attraction which there is still and all that sort of thing, you know what you do in love is you, you choose. Love, real love, is choosing. Even when it's hard. Or even when you've been in an argument. Or even when you're going through a tough season. Real love is choosing the other. You see. See, that's repentance. Repentance is choosing. Everything in your flesh is saying, I hate this. (laughs) In your flesh. He did wrong. She did wrong. What kind of Christian is she? People are going to know about me now. How dare her come to me or him come to me and tell me about this? I'm the pastor. Who, who, what right do you have? That's all the things. And then when you, it all settles and the Lord starts speaking to you, you say, shoot, I sinned. And that really hurts because I've sinned against you, Lord, and now I've hurt some people. And everything in me just wants to go and run and hide and not tell anybody about this, but I'm going to choose to do what you've asked me to, and that's go make it right as much as it's up to me, to make it right with the other, to ask for your forgiveness first, Lord, and walk towards you in this and leave the other behind. That's repentance, and it's hard. And it's difficult, and it's not just getting found out. In fact, Paul says that it's going to be something that you're going to be diligent in, and it's going to produce diligence in you. You're going to feel so free and productive and, and loved when you get through this process of repentance. You'll be diligent in it, but you'll also be diligent before the Lord because you will be free now. Because you're living a life of transparency. What could anybody do? You've admitted it. And as much as they keep coming back and bringing it up, you just keep saying, I know. I was wrong. It's freeing, and you'll be diligent. What else would it do? There's going to be a great clearing of yourselves. Not something like we're talking about an ungodly repentance, but that you're going to be cleared of the guilt and the shame and the transparency. And now you're going to walk in a new path correctly in the will of God, and you're going to be trustworthy and not touchy about it. And you're just going to agree with your adversary quickly because, yeah, you're right. That's what it's going to produce in you. There's going to be that great clearing of yourself. And you're going to, as in repentant people, you're going to be hating sin and you're going to be loving uh, the Lord out of a love and fear of the Lord and the justice that he'll take care of and I don't have to take care of anymore. And that there'd be this great desire to do what is right. I'm just counting off vehement desire. And I'm going to be zealous for this repentance. I'm going to maintain an attitude of repentance, and I'm going to uh, be vindicated in this because justice will be done and I won't have to worry about it. How freeing is that? See, that's repentance. And in all these things, you prove yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wow, they were free to come back together and to just put it behind them. Isn't that beautiful? If people would live like this in the Christian church, come on, man. Wouldn't it be beautiful? And it's right here, right in front of our eyes. Let me finish out with this. Therefore, we've been comforted in your comfort. Ah, 
What a beautiful thing. It's like the spring day when the flowers are blooming and the rain has come and the sun has come up and now we're smelling the beauty of all that has transpired here, all that tough stuff of planting and digging and putting in the ground and now beauty, it's happening because we're comforted in your comfort. Wow! We can come together and you can live freely. It's so beautiful. Repentance and reconciliation. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. When he saw what happened at your church through repentance, wow, he was refreshed, he says. For if anything I have boasted in him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. In other words, he's just sort of saying, I'm so proud of you, you did it. It was hard. I didn't want to go through it. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Man, when there is real repentance, either on your part or somebody else's part, and there's real reconciliation that the Lord shows us, uh, instead of what the world says, it's not just being sorry because we got caught or that people are going to know and we're trying to hide it. No, we just live openly and there's nothing anyone can do and we come back together. Wow, I have confidence in you. Now, you know, right? I've talked about this on several occasions. I won't go into it today. I think that we can all forgive people in the context, forgive anyone, anyone, anyone. Now listen to what I'm saying here. You got to pay attention in the context of the rela- our relationship with the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm working all things out for good for those who love me. Uh, uh, leave the justice to me, in other words. But I think there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And reconciliation is the way in which we can look across the aisle as the offended party and see and evaluate if somebody is really repentant. He just spelled it out for you. And when you get to the end of the time of consistency, are you, are you all tracking with me? As the offending party of being diligent and zealous and consistent and repentant, and you've proved it over and over and over again to the party that's been offended. Look at this. The offended party, Paul, can come and say, wow. I have total confidence in you. We've been restored. Hmm. What an amazing portion of Scripture that is lacking in the church today. What happens, I think, is we get into such big churches, and there's nothing wrong with a big church as we can split out, and we don't get to know people, and there's no holding anybody accountable in the right and appropriate way. I'm not talking about some weird shepherding thing or me controlling your life or the pastor. No way. That's not it. But we need to hold each other accountable in the appropriate way as people of the Lord so that there would be no sin in the camp and so that we're free to be on mission. And the mission is to equip one another so we can go out and share to a loving, or excuse me, to a dark and hurting world with the loving news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stay on mission. But in order to stay on mission, oftentimes, 
Reconciliation and repentance must happen first. And it's one of the great ways, because you ever been in the midst of a place where you're not reconciled with somebody? It's like suffering. It's hard. Remember, in Philippians, the author there, Paul, says, that's one of the arenas, suffering, where you get to know the Lord better. If you'll only say yes and amen to the way in which he wants you to do it, as prescribed right here. So here, here's what I want to tell you or talk to you about as we close. And are we singing another song? Yeah. Uh, as we close, here's what I want. If you've never repented and come into the family of God, the first step, well, today's the day of salvation. Do that. And I'm going to pray right here. You could pray with me. But maybe you're somebody that needs to reconcile with another. And there needs to be repentance in your life. Maybe you and I and we, we need to ask that the Lord humble our hearts so that we could go to that person and say, I was wrong. And I want to live according to what the Lord has for me. So I want to honor him by just following that prescribed method that he set forth right there to be a repentant person. Maybe that's you. Well, either way, why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. Lord, thanks for this amazing word <laughs> that you've given us here today, Lord. Lord, help us to be people who would repent unto God and fall or run to the arms of Jesus for salvation and justification. And Lord, if that's a place that we've already been and we're on that journey, but we're stuck with holding forgiveness, reconciling with people, and being repentant. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would Open the doors for reconciliation and repentance in our lives first. And if there's somebody that's offended us in their lives, recognizing that we're not out to hurt them, but we're out to restore them too, according to your word. Lord, work in our hearts, would you please? Keep us tender, teachable, and humble. In Jesus' name, amen.